You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and these are Daniel Howitt's interviews with the writer and director for CODA, Sean Hedder, and the star, Troy Kotzer. You're the girl with the deaf family? Yeah. And you sing. Interesting. Something's got a hold on me here. What are you doing next year? Working with my family. Let me tell you now, I've got a feeling I feel so strange. Everything about me seems to have changed. I've been coaching for Berkeley College of Music. I can help you get a scholarship. Well, Sean, thank you so much for talking with me today about CODA. I'm excited to be here. Uh, this is your second feature film after Tallulah in 2016, and of course you've directed plenty of TV. I'd love to know, what did you learn from Tallulah that you took into CODA? Never work with babies. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, no, oh, that's such an interesting question. Um, I think... What I took from Tallulah is just how important that connection with your actors is. Um, Forging a lot of trust and a really safe space in which to work and making sure that your actors um, feel connected to you and trust you because it's an incredibly vulnerable thing. It doesn't matter how famous you are or how much you've worked. I think you really have to believe in your director and believe that they are protecting you and and guiding you and so it was interesting I think you know to have those relationships on Tallulah with Elliot and Allison and then and Tammy and and then to go on to CODA and really you know, at first, especially with Marley and Daniel and Troy, be working with an interpreter, which is what I thought I was going to do on the first day. And then I realized how important that direct connection was to me and how much I really didn't want someone else in the middle of that relationship because of my experience working on Tallulah and, and, and the value that I placed in that direct connection. And so, you know, I had been studying sign and I I went to Troy and Daniel and Marley, I think after the first take, and I said, hey, you guys, I really just want to communicate with you directly. Is it okay if we just sign directly and we'll always have the interpreter there to jump in? But I really need, I really need this connection with you and I need to be looking into your eyes and have you looking into mine and and for you to see the emotion on my face and all of that. And they were like, yes, please. You know, I think they were feeling it too. And it was amazing. Like, I think we just found a totally different way for me to work, you know, to be communicating directorial thoughts with my body and my face and, and through sign. And, and so that was a really incredible experience, you know, and, and I feel like even developed stronger relationships than I did, you know, on my first film. I mean, that, that they were all amazing relationships with my actors, but there was something about the way that we had to work Um, and the way that we chose to work on CODA, which really was a very heightened level of connection. 
can, can you dive in a little bit deeper to that? That's a really fascinating idea of, of having to direct with your hands and your body as opposed to your words. How, how did that change the way you directed? How were you able to communicate the right tone or, or the right inflection of, of how you wanted the things to come across? Well, you know, it's so interesting because as a director, words are really important, but also words can mean different things to different people. I mean, there's plenty of times that I've given a hearing actor a note and said a word that means something to me and it means something different to them. And you watch a performance kind of go sideways and you're like, oh wait, that's not what I was intending. And so it's always a process to learn the language that that particular actor speaks because every actor works differently. And some actors love a lot of notes, you know, and they, they want a full map of the emotional map of the scene. And some actors don't want that. They just want reassurance or they, you know, they want one thing to think about. And, and so it's always a process to find that with each individual. And it was the same in this case, you know, I worked differently with Marley than I did with Daniel or Troy or Amelia, but I think that there was something very cool about just like sort of using, I mean, my sign was in a way limited. I was conversational, but I couldn't express, you know, big ideas. And we did always have an interpreter there to jump in. And plenty of times it was like, if there was a real nuance to the conversation that we needed to clarify there, that person was jumping in. Um, but there was a lot of sort of emotion on my face, you know, or, um, a lot of touching, you know, where we would sort of um, be physical with each other. Or if I didn't have the signs, I would be sort of gesturing or Troy would be laughing at me because I would be making up signs and he'd be like, no, that's not the right sign. <laughs> like <laughs> you look crazy right now. Um, but you realize that there are, as human beings, we have a lot of tools at our disposal to communicate with. And there's a self-consciousness often about using those other tools. And I, I think, you know, even in learning sign, a lot of people feel like it's just your hands and hand shapes. Well, it's not, it's your eyebrows and what they're doing. It's the emotion on your face. It's your mouth shape. It's spatial. It's around your body. And so in a way you have to free yourself up to be outside of your comfort zone a little bit, because I think we're a little bit, you know, sometimes when we talk, there's a disconnect between what we're saying and, and what our bodies are doing. And in a way you can't have that in sign language. So I found it very freeing and actually natural to me. I mean, you see how I'm using my hands like crazy when I talk anyway, I think I'm somebody that likes to express myself that way. And so there was something really fun about figuring out how to do it. And sometimes it was simpler, you know, sometimes my direction, I think I can overtalk with hearing actors sometimes where you're kind of explaining something. And this was like kind of a very clear level of communication where I would go for the one thing that I really needed in that moment. And we, and we would find a way to get there. So I don't quite know, you know, how we did it, <laughs> but we did. And it was really beautiful. That's awesome. Uh, one thing I love about Coda is how it's, it's this tricky balancing act of tone and you really uh, nailed the, the, that balancing act. It's, we, it's genuinely hilarious. We're able to laugh uh, and have a great time with it. And it's also very moving um, and honestly emotional. How did you balance that tone? How difficult was that as the writer and director to balance that tone? Weirdly, I, I always love 
tone that is a mashup of those two things. I think, you know, it's always in my work where you have intense emotion and high drama and catharsis, but also funny. I, I don't think, you know, and that feels like life to me. I think even in our darkest moments, there's weirdness and humor and all of that. So it's definitely always been in my work. And I've been lucky even on shows that I didn't create or projects I didn't create like Orange is the New Black. I mean, Genji really had my tone in the sense that she felt like those two things could live together. You could have intensely hilarious moments right up against high emotion and high stakes. And, and that feels real in a way. And it also feels entertaining. And I don't think you can make an audience cry in a way, unless you make them laugh. I mean, you probably can, but it's a lot easier <laughs> to lead people into emotion when you open them up by letting them laugh and, and, and let their guard down and, and really enjoy the characters and, and feel a part of this family. And so the humor is just something that's kind of inherent in everything I do. And of course, you're always looking for where the line is. You know, I remember Ohenio and I talked a lot about it because he's a comedian and he came in to play the teacher and he comes from this comedy background and he was like, where's the line with this guy? You know, this could tip over into caricature or parody. And so we were always kind of, and yet those teachers sometimes from your life that that feel larger than life and, and are big characters. And so how do you kind of walk right up to that line and still keep it grounded and real? And I think the key in all of it is, is finding, finding a reality or, or a grounding in all of those moments so that it never feels like a joke is there for the joke's sake, or, you know, even emotion is there because you're manipulating your audience that it's, organically coming from the situations and the characters. Um, but, you know, Troy is hilariously funny and even a joke on the page became so much funnier once it was in ASL because it's so visual. And, you know, you wonder as you're writing, you're like, how is this joke gonna work when it's not, you know, a spoken punchline? And yet there were moments that were so hilarious that I never could have expected to be as hilarious as they were because Troy is so inventive with his sign language too. Like it's taking the signs and then it's also just riffing on those signs and, and you know, kind of being incredibly creative and funny with, with, with where he's going with, with the language. Yeah, Troy is a revelation. Uh, he, he is such a standout. And not just hilarious, but also really moving. My favorite yeah. scene in, in the film is uh, the scene on the truck with between he, uh, him and Ruby. Uh, I'd love to hear about the visual construction of that scene. Was that a difficult scene to stage? It's, it's re a relatively simple setup, but this really, really powerful moment. Could you take me through kind of how you approach that, setting the stage for that scene? Yeah, I mean, it, it was a very... It was in a way trying to create an environment that felt very intimate for my actors. And, you know, we were out, we'd lived in that house for seven days. We'd been in there. It started to feel like the Rossi house. You know, it was definitely, we were all packed in there together. And um, and we were outside and I, I wanted to make sure, I actually had two cameras rolling at once during that scene because I wanted my actors to be able to find, you know, when you do cross coverage and you're sort of able, because you don't know what moment's gonna happen. And I didn't want my actors to have to repeat it if 
if a beautiful moment happened between them and a kind of connection happened, I wanted to make sure that I was getting both of their coverage in that one moment. And it, so it was a very simple setup. I mean, we had a two camera, we had a camera on Amelia and a camera on Troy. And, and in that moment, actually, you know, we started the scene and Troy looked at me and signed, I, I can't feel anything on her neck. And you sort of realize you get, you know, I was definitely in a hearing person's perspective, even when I wrote the scene where you sort of imagining there's some magical transference of music where, where, you know, Troy's care, you know, Frank is going to kind of finally understand what music is. And that's not what the scene is about. It's about him connecting with his daughter and this incredible intimacy in the effort put into connecting and sitting close and touching each other. And, and so in that moment, it was so interesting. It sort of stopped being about Frank and Ruby and it started being about Troy and Amelia. And it was Amelia, you need to give this to Troy right now and find a way to sing louder and place your voice in a place that he can, he can feel it. And Troy, you have to find it on her and you guys have to work together as a team to do that. And that created this beautiful moment. I mean, because it was this team effort where suddenly they both had a project and they were trying to connect and, and I remember when we finished shooting, I looked and everyone had walked away from set. The interpreters had walked away. The camera operator had even stepped back from the, and I was like, what is going on? And everybody was crying because it was this moment on set and I was too, and Troy and Amelia. There are so many ways that I think, you know, I guess those separations are put between us. And there was just something so beautiful about the effort and teamwork to connect and work together on this moment. And, you know, Troy has a Coda daughter who's the same age as Amelia and Amelia was away from her dad. And I think they had forged this intense connection on set. And it was just a beautiful, a beautiful moment. But in terms of the camera, a lot of times I felt like, especially with the ASL, it was how do I get out of the way and let the language, the characters, the emotion takes center stage and what's happening. And actually, I didn't want to be intrusive with the camera. I wanted to be intimate and I wanted to capture those scenes, but I didn't want to impose anything, I guess, on, on what wasn't already happening. It's a, it's a beautiful moment. It hits you like a ton of bricks. It, it is uh, really powerful. You've watched them in unforgettable adventures, love affairs, and tragedies. Now it's time to hear their own remarkable stories. From the makers of Death of a Rockstar and Death of a Sports Star, this is Death Ready. of a Film Star. And action. Starring Heath Ledger, Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman, Robin Williams, Carrie Fisher, and Bruce Lee. Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. You've seen them tell stories. Now it's time to tell theirs. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. 
We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. One, one final question before I let you go. Of course, Coda was a massive hit at Sundance. Uh, we, we talk a lot about awards here. There's, you know, awards buzz for the film. Of course, the Oscars has had movies like Sound of Metal and Feeling Through. What will it take, do you think, for performers uh, with various disabilities to be recognized at the Oscars in a different way? Of course, Marley is one of the few to have ever won an Oscar uh, with a disability. And I'd love to hear just what you think about different sorts of performances getting attention like this. Well, you know, I, I think over the whatever it is, 92 years of the Oscars, you know, there are so many instances of non-disabled actors being rewarded for playing a disability. Um, I think it's something that's seen as, you know, wow, that's really acting, or you really went for it because you were in a wheelchair, you pretended to be blind, or, and What's happening there is not just these incredible performers, you know, there is a lot of deaf talent out there. There were many choices for each of these roles. And like you said, it's like Troy Kotzer to me is a, a gem. He's a movie star. I, I saw him on stage for the first time and he's got charisma and charm and this handsome big, you know, guy. And you just go like, this guy should be hugely famous. Daniel Durant is the same thing to me. I'm like, he, he's a total Fox. <laughs> he should, he should be a movie star. Um, I think it's about the opportunities that have been given to these actors. And so when a role comes along, that is a deaf role or a, a character that has a disability, they're just, I think creators, directors, writers, you're missing out on a creative opportunity to have that character imbued with a lived experience that is not a costume you put on. It is, it is something that you know because you've lived it. And I think these actors, beyond being deaf actors, are brilliant actors. And I would hope that they get recognized. You know, I, I, that if I have one hope for this movie coming into the world, it is for these actors to finally get the recognition and acclaim that they deserve. Um, because even Marley, you know, won an Oscar when she was 19. And I think she's had a big career, but she hasn't had the career that she deserves as honestly an Oscar winner who, who is a brilliant actress. So I don't know, I, I'm so proud of, of what my actors did in this film. They all dug in in a way that was so committed, you know, whether it was Amelia who'd never sung before, you know, never had a singing lesson, you know, who dug into that, who learned to sign, you know, Troy and Daniel going out on the boat every day to learn how to tie those knots and pull in the big metal doors and the nets and sort those fish, you know, Ohenio was studying piano for months, you know, Marley to me is just also a revelation in terms of the comedy and the drama and what she can pull off. So I don't know. I, I, I'm hopeful for this cast to be recognized beyond anything else. 
Absolutely. It is uh, one of my favorite movies of the year, and I'm so grateful for it. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That was a really fun conversation. I want to do this. There are plenty of pretty voices with nothing to say. Do you have something to say? required to have a hearing individual on board at all times. I can't stay with you for the rest of my life. I've never done anything without my family before. Troy, we are talking just a few days after opening weekend of CODA. Thank you so much for talking with me today. I, I would love to hear, you know, you've been singled out so much for your performance in the film. So much attention. Has it been gratifying, weird? How, how has this weekend been for you? I have mixed emotions. I'm excited. This is unexpected. It's a little overwhelming with everything. It's not what I expected, but it is very exciting. I mean, wow. I just, I'm handless, right? I, I don't even know what to say. Well, uh, I'd love to hear more about the project. I was talking to Sean and she was telling me that you have a hearing daughter around the same age as the character of Ruby. How much of your own family's experience did you see in this project and, and what made you want to sign on? It's funny you ask. Um, my real life daughter, was born 15 years ago and I've seen her journey. And then when I got the script for CODA, there are so many of my friends who have CODAs themselves and I've heard all of their stories. And then reading this script, it's, it's really depicts what's happening out there in the real world with CODAs. And so I jumped at the opportunity and I'm very glad I did. Every time I went through the script, it made me think of my own daughter. It was very much parallel, but not like the doctor's office. I mean, in the movie, it does depend. If you're in a small town, you might not have as much access. And that's why they're more dependent on their coded child. But in a big city, I didn't meet my own daughter to interpret. There are different agencies that provide that. But um, you have to remember in the past, deaf people didn't have that kind of access. Um, and so they'd have to bring along their own child to interpret. And so the, the movie gives a good example of that. So seeing your own experience, at least to some degree, reflected in the story, did that affect the way that you bonded with Amelia? Very much so. When I saw Amelia, it reminded me a lot of my own daughter. And my wife and I, we watched the movie and, and she said, yeah, that's just, just like our daughter. And I said, yeah, just her facial expressions. We just bonded almost instantly. We had this amazing chemistry. It all came together. And um, we just, I had a very good bond with Amelia. We felt very close. And that was a huge benefit. Yeah, you can tell the chemistry is there. It's, it, uh, you guys had such a beautiful relationship. Well, so, so many stories about hearing loss or the deaf community are, are often 
deeply serious. But part of what makes Coda great is how lighthearted and hilarious it can be. Your character especially uh, is absolutely hilarious. You and Marley play off so well together. I didn't expect so many uh, fart jokes and sex jokes. I loved it. So how much were you able to improvise on set? With improvisation, in the past, I took specific workshops with Gary Gostin. And he's since passed, but he taught me a lot about improv. And that was a real benefit that I could apply to the stage, TV, film. When I got to code, I said, I really want to use improv. I don't want to limit myself with making just one decision. I want to have different emotions, different takes to give the editors more choice. And at the same time, I know it's expensive to shoot for a whole day. And I wanted to give it as much as I could. Secondly, when we were filming and I was behind the camera and they, I would really improv to get reactions from the actors, from my fellow actors. I wanted their reactions to be raw instead of just scripted and wrote. I wanted to change it up. And we still went the same intent, but there were different ways of reacting. And that's the beauty of supporting one another so that you really are able to capture that in the camera because then that remains. And I don't wanna look back and say, oh, I wish we did it this way instead. We had the opportunity to try out different things. And that's what was so great about being able to improv. And it's also nice that the director asked me to do that because there were certain things that weren't in the script and Marley and I would play off of one another. And we had two ASL masters. We had Ann Tomasetti and Alexandria Wales who had a keen eye on what we were doing and they were able to write that down so that it was captured. And then that was later, those lines were later inserted. For example, when we're in the audience at Ruby's concert, Frank and Jackie are sitting next to each other and Jackie says, what do you want for dinner? And I say, pasta. That was all improv. And there are more examples of that throughout the film. You mentioned working with Sean. I wanted to hear about your relationship with her as a director, as a writer and director. Uh, what was your relationship like on set and what was it like working with her? With Sean, I saw she had a very big heart and she really cared. That was ob obvious. She was sensitive. She wanted to understand our culture and she did her homework. She learned sign language herself early on, way before the auditions. And that informed the strip, script, it made it stronger. And she wrote it. And so she really did her due diligence. And when we met, she was very open, respectful. A good example of that, I'll tell you an anecdote. At the Rossi house, we had the furniture set up a certain way. And then Anne and Marley got there and said, this is not befitting of a, of a deaf environment because all the chairs were one next to one another. Hearing people, you can talk without making that eye contact. But for deaf people, it's very constraining. So we switched it so people could sit opposite one another. And that was a learning experience. They're used to just setting things up for the camera, but they had to reframe things to fit in with how our culture would communicate in a real authentic deaf home. 
And that's just a good example of her having an open mind as a director and being respectful. What you see is very real. What was it like receiving direction from Sean? Uh, obviously, using interpreters to get the emotion across. Did you guys develop a shorthand? That's a good question. Most of the time, we had four interpreters on set, and they all happened to be CODAs. And they would rotate. And when I wanted to talk with the director, I wanted to communicate with Sean directly. She had been learning sign language and can communicate. If there was any serious issue, then we would enlist an interpreter. We'd had those conversations. And when the Jack, or, or I'm sorry, when Frank and Ruby are sitting on the truck at the end, there was the line where Frank was supposed to say, thank you. But I asked Sean to come over and I said, I feel this is kind of weird. After Ruby sings for Frank, to just say thank you didn't seem right. You know, deaf people are tired of just everybody saying thank you. Most hearing people know that one sign. And so when you go get coffee, you know, the person says thank you, they open the door, thank you. But here with my daughter singing for me, that just didn't feel right. And Sean was amenable to a different way of doing it. And instead using my eyes and my facial expressions to express myself. And she looks at me after she sings, Ruby looks at Frank and says, as if to say, do you get it? And I smile and then I kiss her on the forehead. And that was even better than saying thank you. And I was happy that we went that route and that Sean was open to capturing that very tender moment. I mean, for the, look, the audience is smart. I would hope anyway. That is absolutely the best moment in the film to me. Um, you spoke a little bit about your connection with Amelia already. Uh, I'd love to hear about your connection with Marley and with Daniel. I know you worked with them before and what it was like hanging out on the boat with Daniel. It was amazing. We had already known each other. We had that comfort level. We used the same language. We can joke around directly. In the past, you just have one deaf role on a production or you'd have to have an interpreter to facilitate conversations. But here we had the opportunity to have three deaf actors that all use American Sign Language and we trusted one another. Marley and I, we've known each other for a long time and I've known Daniel for a while. We actually lived at an Airbnb during production for two months. We were with each other 24 seven. We got to talk, we cooked together, we joked around and then we went to work and we got up, we went on the boat we really had a good rapport like father and son, and that was a benefit. And with Marley, I already had that relationship. So it all coalesced. And then as actors, understanding how we were responsible and what we needed to give on set, we had that trust. And it was a beautiful how it came together. It doesn't often happen that way, where you have more than one deaf character. It was very exciting to work with both of them, especially Marley. It was quite an honor. I will never forget as a young guy, I was 17, and my friends and I watched Children of a Lesser God together for the first time. And I kept saying to them, one day, friends, I will be working with her. And they just snickered. And then 30 years later, here I am. Uh, I wish I could just break down that fourth wall and say, hey, and say hi to my friends in the audience. Hey, look, I'm working with Marley. Oh, wait, let me get back to work. <laughs> Well, uh, you're, you're from Arizona, from the desert. I'm here in Las Vegas, also the desert. Are you going to be hopping back on those fishing boats anytime soon? Mm, you know, I never fished in the ocean with those big waves. I mean, obviously, we're, like you said, we're in the desert. There is no ocean. There are no whales. So you have to go far to find that out. It was a different world. 
Um, there weren't cities, there wasn't much traffic. It was all the, the waterscape. And it was like, it depends on the waves and, and how your body reacts. It, you, you felt that sway. And then even off the ship, I still felt my body swaying and my mind swaying. Um, it was an interesting experience. And then now coming back to Arizona, it's hard to get used to it. It took me a while to acclimate and to get out of the character of Frank. Even after we wrapped up, I kept the beer for six months. I wasn't ready to let go. I missed it. And my wife complained, when can I kiss you without the beard? And so I ended up cutting it off. Frank is gone. But, you know, he's still there in the movie. So you can know where to find him. It was a great experience. You, you've talked about how Children of the Lesser God made an impact on you all those years ago, seeing sign language on the screen, which is rare. How does it feel to be in a movie that might have that same effect for, for kids and young people now? Absolutely. Based on past experience when I was younger, having that experience, that made me dream. And it took me years. It was just a matter of time. But here I am in this film, I'm looking to the younger generation. And I want them to have that same experience. I hope that their hopes are increased. Now with technology, there's more access. Here we are on Zoom. That wasn't in place before. It's more deaf friendly. I can see things evolving and I'm hoping that Hollywood has more of an open mind at this point. It's nice to have diverse representation with actors. People are people. Absolutely. And just last year we had Sound of Metal uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm finding out now that you have been friends with Paul Reishi for a number of years. We love Paul. Uh, he, we, so many people fell in love with him last year and now people are falling in love with you this year. So when are you guys going to team up and work on a film together? Because the people want it. That is an aspiration of mine that someday I'll get to work with Paul like that. And what you said, I'm falling in love with his character. I loved him in that movie. I've worked with him in so many different productions. We have a very good chemistry together. We've worked as a team. There aren't many actors out there that are real CODAs, that are professional actors like him. There are not many of those. And so it's exciting to have him have a serious role. And we just have good experiences and hopefully there'll be a future project. I would love to work with him again, but I don't know um, whether it's gonna be theater, film, TV, we'll have to see where things go. Well, before I let you go, I'd love to hear about any future project. There's so many of us who are very excited to see what you do next. A couple days ago, Deadline announced that a next project will be called Flash Before the Bang. And that's based on a true story at a school for the deaf where they have eight deaf track runners. I play the coach, the track coach, and this deaf team comes together and plays against, runs against different other hearing schools and they win the champion, state championship in Oregon back in the 1980s. And it's a true story, it's very inspirational and I will be the coach. And what's even more exciting is we'll have two deaf producers and a deaf director and some deaf writers and we have a hearing and deaf people working together. It's gonna to be a very exciting project coming up and that will increase opportunities for young deaf actors to play those uh, track runners. So that's exciting. Very excited to hear about that. I uh, can't wait to, to see that film. 
Troy, I can't thank you enough for your work in Coda. Really, uh, some of my favorite of the year. Uh, you're incredible. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. It really means a lot. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Daniel Howitt's interviews with the writer and director for the new film Coda, Sean Hedder, and the star, Troy Kotzer. Coda is currently streaming on Apple TV+. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening. As always, we shall see you all next time. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased, and essential world news daily.